tell our listeners about the work of Manfred Bietak and some of the things he discovered at the archaeological dig site at Tel Adaba? This is the location of both Ramesses and also this earlier city, which is underneath it, called Avaris. And he found this huge population of Semitic peoples living there in Egypt. It starts in the very first phase as a small village, 70 to 100 people. And then it rapidly expands over a period of maybe 60 to 100 years. This small settlement becomes a huge city of Semitic peoples. Hey there, Shane Rosenthal here. In light of the unusual nature of this particular Passion Week and Easter, with most of our churches remaining closed, here at the White Horse Inn, we decided to unlock numerous programs from the White Horse Inn archive to help you and your family focus on the significance of Christ's death and resurrection. These episodes will remain accessible to all from now through the end of April. You can find a link to this special collection in the featured section there on the front page of our website, whitehorseinn.org. That's whitehorseinn.org. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, welcome to the White Horse Inn. Hey there, welcome to another edition of the White Horse Inn. I'm Shane Rosenthal. According to many, if not most, contemporary Egyptologists and archaeologists currently working in the Near East, the story of the Israelite exodus from Egypt never really happened. In their view, there's actually no evidence that the people of Israel were ever slaves in Egypt, and the entire episode recorded in the Bible was basically the invention of later Judean scribes who desired to create a heroic past for the Jewish nation. But is the story of the exodus really a myth? According to Egyptologist David Roll, The problem has been that for the past 200 years, scholars have been searching for the biblical stories in all the right places, but in what has proved to be entirely the wrong time. His archaeological research has led him to the conclusion that the Old Testament is not, in fact, a work of pious fiction, but is a genuine source of history. Quote, if you open your eyes to the evidence coming out of the ground, you will see that my conviction is based on a mass of detail and cogent argument to corroborate the basic truths of the biblical stories. Though I continue to regard myself as an agnostic, he says, that is, as a person still undecided in matters of faith, I am convinced that the stories in the Bible are based on real events and real personalities. Well, David Roll is joining us for this program to discuss his views. He has appeared in numerous documentaries, including the recent Patterns of Evidence series, and is the author of numerous books, including Pharaohs and Kings, A Test for Time, and more recently, Exodus, Myth, or History. Dr. David Roll, thanks for being my guest today on the White Horse Inn. It's my pleasure to be here. So before we discuss your research, first of all, how are you and your loved ones doing in light of the coronavirus pandemic? Is everyone healthy? Yes, we're fine here. I live up a mountain, my wife and myself, um, looking out over the Mediterranean in, in Spain. So most of the problems have arisen in Madrid and Barcelona, the two major cities, where there's a high concentration of people and also uh, where there are a lot of nursing homes. And that's where the big problems are. In our local area here, I think we've heard of about three or four incidents, but they are down on the coast rather than up in the mountains where we are. We're quite isolated as we are. And in fact, uh, over the last five weeks, I think I've only seen one human being who turned up at the house with some heating oil. So, uh, you know, it's quite rare for me to actually see another human being at the moment. <laughs> Sounds like you're currently living the life of a hermit. 
Well, yes. I mean, it's it's. I've not found it a problem, to be honest, this isolation. I mean, I've got lots to do. I've got a book to write. I'm reading again, which I didn't have time to do before. I'm doing some music in my recording studio. So it's uh, actually quite a pleasure. So your country has been hit pretty hard uh, right along there with Italy and the U.S. How long have you guys been on lockdown? Um, I think officially around four weeks, but I started five weeks ago, so it's quite a long time for me. Um, yes, I mean, we, I think we're around about 15,000 official deaths now at the moment, but uh, I don't think that figure actually covers it because there's a lot of people in nursing homes or who died actually in their own homes who are not in the reports. So they're probably underestimating the number of people who've died as a direct result of this pandemic. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into the subject of your research in the field of Egyptology. So I was first introduced to your work back in 2003 or 2004 after watching a documentary in which you were featured. And around that time, I recall writing down in my notes that you had proposed a new chronology of the ancient world that had implications on the way we think about biblical studies. That's absolutely right. Can you go into that a little bit? Sure, sure. It all started way back in the 1970s when I was uh, looking at a very important book by a famous professor of Egyptology called Kenneth Kitchen. And uh, this book had just come out and it brought together all the information, all the data we had on a particular period of history in Egypt, which was the 21st to 25th dynasties. And um, I realized there was something very wrong with this book. Uh, the uh, The understandings that came out of reading it were that uh, there were a lot of assumptions there that really weren't facts. And so it got me into the idea of looking at time and chronology and how Egypt related to other civilizations around the ancient world. And of course, one of the primary relationships is that we have in the Bible between Egypt and, and the Israelites. Uh, I realized there was something drastically wrong with Egyptian chronology, uh, possibly as much as 300 years out it was. And so having realigned it and, and worked on the Egyptian material, I then came to the conclusion that the synchronisms between the Bible and Egypt were much better with this new chronology than they were previously, because there were no real connections that we had uh, previously with the conventional dating scheme that came from Egypt. I think I saw a documentary once where you were featured, you were telling your life story, and there was a child acting your part, and your shadow was being cast into the tomb of this ancient Egyptian mausoleum yeah. or something. That was rather a strange experience, actually, because the producers who uh, made the, the documentary actually decided to use actors to, to play my parts right. rather than me. And it's very rare for somebody still to be alive when that happens. It's usually when you're long dead <laughs> that you get that privilege. Um, so it was quite a strange uh, thing to experience watching that with, a, as you say, a young boy telling the story. And then, of course, a, a mature actor doing me at university, etc. So it was a very strange thing. But it, it told the story correctly, I suppose. Yes, I got into uh, Egyptology very early on. Then I went into the music industry for about uh, 25, 30 years. And when I'd made lots of money in as a record producer, I went back to university for the second time to study Egyptology properly, because I'd had that love all the way through my life and uh, went on to do a PhD. So I've been involved in, in Egyptology the whole life, and I've studied it uh, at university within the academic setting. So what were some of those initial anomalies that helped you realize things were amiss in your own reckoning? 
Well, it, it's all about um, the way that the, the, the Egyptologists reconstruct the, the timeline of a very, very difficult period. Uh, it's the period of Egyptian history which even students don't go into. Professors don't teach it because it's so complex. Yeah. And it's basically after the collapse of the New Kingdom, the great pharaohs like Ramesses II, etc. And we get into this sort of Dark Age period before we get to the, what we would probably call the Late Period or Classical Period. And it's dynasties 21 to 25. They're the ones that are the problematic ones. And they're a big mess. They're a quagmire of, of, of data that doesn't quite fit together. And we have holes in the data that we can't join things up together properly. And it seemed to me that um, it was easy for the Egyptologists to spread out the period and fit in all these bits of data into a big space than try to compress it down to what it might be in reality. Because yeah. some of the gaps that were forming there didn't make any sense. So what I did was I took that all together and I undid the whole thing and, and replaced these kings as tightly as possible within that framework, these five dynasties. And then when I looked towards the biblical world, with these timelines being shortened and, and reduced, we end up with synchronisms which make absolute sense with the archaeology of, of uh, uh, the Levant and the Holy Land, with the archaeology of Egypt and the, and the Delta in terms of uh, the Joseph story and, and the Exodus. All those things seem to fit much better with this shortened timeline. And you didn't go into that field of trying to find synchronisms between Egyptology and the Bible based on any kind of Christian conviction, right? That was just an, no. something you discovered later, right? Absolutely. I mean, that wasn't my interest at all. Yeah. Um, my interest was trying to solve the Egyptian problem. And having done so, the obvious thing to go for next was to look outside Egypt and see how the new timeline affected all these other civilizations. And the nearest neighbor to Egypt is Israel. Yeah. How was your new chronology initially received by the wider community of historians and Egyptologists? Not very well. Uh, <laughs> it's the usual story. It's very difficult to change a paradigm. Um, it's very hard to convince people who've studied the subject and taught the subject for all their lives, explaining away dark ages, etc. Their careers have been based on all this. And then some young book comes along who's been in the music industry for 25 years and says, hang on a minute, yeah. there's something not quite right here. What about this idea? And of course, it's very difficult for people who've been teaching at university for 30 or 40 years to change their minds. However, the younger Egyptologists, different matter. Have you found that there's maybe a little bit more movement in recent years with regard to the old guard? Well, I think so. I mean, even my nemesis, uh, Professor Kenneth Gitchin, who originally said that I was 98% rubbish, uh, he's now admitted in a debate that we had in University of Reading a few years back that the new chronology or the David Roll Exodus state is as powerful and as strong as his own uh, view about the Ramesses Exodus state. So, you know, there's somebody who was absolutely dismissive of it coming along right. and saying, well, you know, there's some strength to this. Yeah. Now, for the purposes of this program, I'd like to primarily talk to you about your book, Exodus, Myth or History. But before we dive into some of the details of your research in that book, I'd like you to interact with a few quotes from yeah. some respected archaeologists. For example, Zeev Herzog writes that the yeah. Israelites were never in Egypt. Most people would agree this is legendary and not a historical event. Norma Franklin says, I don't believe that there was a single event that we can call the Exodus archaeologically or historically. And then Israel Finkelstein says, when we try to read the Exodus on the background of the 13th century BC, it simply doesn't work because there is yeah. no archaeological evidence. So David Roll, how do you respond to assertions of those kinds? Well, all three of them are right. 
they're right because when they look at the 12th century, the 13th century, the 1250 BC date, the so-called Ramesses Exodus date, there is no evidence. Their problem is they're not looking in the right timeline. They're not looking in the right place in time, history. But with the new chronology dating, we do find evidence for the conquest. And before that, we find evidence for a massive population of Israelites in Goshen and the Eastern Delta in the centuries before that date, which would be fitting the Sodium period of the Bible. Now, those historians who do believe that there is some kind of historical basis for the Exodus typically argue that Ramesses must have been the pharaoh who reigned during the time of Moses. What's that conviction yeah. based on, and what are some of your reasons for challenging that assumption? It's based solely on one passage in Exodus, the first chapter of Exodus, where it talks about the Israelites building the store cities of Ramses and Pithom. And that's it, all it's based on, nothing else. Um, but if you think about it, uh, Joseph settled his father Jacob in the land of Ramesses. Okay, now Jacob cannot be at the time of Ramesses because they're hundreds of years earlier. So it's obviously an updating that we have in the text where somebody's updated the location to give the name of the place as it was in the time of the update. Somebody has, has written down the name of the place as it was then, which was called Ramesses. But the earlier name of the place, if we go back and we look under that city archaeologically, there's an older place called Avaris, and that's the one where we have a massive population of Semitic peoples. So it's basically like someone referring to London rather than Londinium. They're updating it for the modern audience who's familiar with the new term, London. It's almost worse than that because you can actually recognize Londinium and London as being the yeah. same place. Yeah. But let's take an example of, of York. Um, the Eighth Legion established a, a camp at York. Is what you'll read in all your encyclopedias and on the Internet, etc. But, of course, it wasn't called York at the time that the Romans settled there. They called it Eberacum. So there's no relationship between Eberacum and York when you look at the actual words, but they're the same place. Kenneth Kitchen is a proponent for the later Exodus date in the 1200s or so BC. How do people who follow his view end up explaining a text like First uh, Kings 6, which says that the Exodus took place 480 years earlier than the period in which Solomon built the temple? Right. Now, that's a really interesting question. Um, what you get is a situation where they want to reduce that date by about 200 years. They go to 1250 BC because of this mention of Ramesses in the, the city of Ramesses in the first chapter of Exodus. So they put everything into this idea it's 1250 BC. So they have to explain how come it says something different in the Bible. And so what they do is they say, oh, well, the Bible was using a 40-year generation, and if you multiply 40 by 12, you get 480 years. And so that's how it works. But we all know it's not 40 years a generation. We think it's much less, maybe 30 years, and therefore we can put a date at 1250 BC. That's how they do it. So it's symbolic enumeration, and then they just kind of try to fit that into their historical scheme. Exactly, exactly. But yet in the Judges period, we have a mention of a 300-year period from the conquest through to the time of late Judges. So there you go. You see, there's a confirmation from a different source. And so if you do take that language from First Kings 6 literally, that it's actually yeah. 480 years before the time of Solomon's temple, that works with your chronology? Absolutely. It's around 1446-1447, yeah. which is the date that most people who believe the, the biblical date uh, would put it in around that time. But a lot of people in evangelical scholarship retain the conventional dating scheme for Egypt. So they end up with a date in the middle of the 18th dynasty for the Exodus when you have the most powerful pharaohs in Egypt 
and, and the richest pharaohs in Egypt, and you don't have any evidence at all of a collapse in Egyptian civilization. Whereas in the new chronology, where you shorten the whole thing by 300 years, you're then bringing it into the context of the 13th dynasty, where there is a massive collapse, and we have the invasion of the Hyksos coming into Egypt, and Egypt is itself enslaved for about 150 years. So that matches much better the, the story of the punishment of Egypt by God when the Israelites leave Egypt after the Exodus. Yeah, yeah. Talk to our listeners for a minute about the Egyptian historian Manetho, whose words were preserved for us by Josephus. What does he say that's relevant to this discussion? What he says in a very, very famous passage, and don't forget that um, he's a, an Egyptian priest, so he's, he's writing from an Egyptian perspective, but he's writing in Greek because his masters are the Greek pharaohs living in Alexandria. So he's writing in Greek, and he says basically that God in the singular right not not the gods of egypt but god smote the egyptians and then immediately afterwards these foreigners these hyksos kings came into egypt and invaded the place and didn't even have to strike a blow why because the egyptian army had been destroyed that's the only conclusion you can come to so we have a smiting of the egyptians by god and then shortly afterwards we have an invade on these foreigners that come into egypt and there's no egyptian army to defend the country so what I do is I say, well, that sounds like the Exodus to me. And the name of the pharaoh that's recorded in that context is Tutimaeus? Yes. Josephus records it as Tutimaeus because it's Greek, remember. Mm -hmm. But when right. we translate that back into Egyptian, the name is Dudimosa. Yeah. And of course, there's the name Moses in that name. So what we have here is the very, very first use of that term, Moses, in a name is Dudimos. We have no Moses before that, apart from this king. And that's exactly the time we put Moses as well. And when is Dudimos reigning as pharaoh over He's the, Egypt? Uh, right at the end of the 13th dynasty. So in the revised chronology, that would be around 1447, 1446 BC. And then when we go a little bit further back in history, we get to the writings of Artapanus, who was a Jewish historian. And he mentions the name of the pharaoh who raised Moses in the palace as a prince of Egypt. He calls him Kenophorus. Now, we know who Kenophorus is because there's one unique pharaoh in, in the entire history of Egypt with that name. And it's called Kenephorus Sobekotep IV. So we can date him. And he's just about 80 years or so before uh, when God smites the Egyptians and, and the whole civilization collapses. Now, tell our listeners about the work of Manfred Bittak and some of the things he discovered at the archaeological dig site at Tel Adaba. Right. Well, this is the location of both Ramesses, the city of Ramesses, and also this earlier city, which is underneath it, called Avaris. So Manfred Bittak is digging the city of Avaris. And in this place called Tel Adaba, he's been he was excavating there from the 1960s. And he found this huge population of Semitic peoples living there. It starts in the very first phase as a small village, maybe 70 to 100 people centered around one particular house. And this house, the, the Germans and Austrians call it a middle room house. And it's a very, very typical of northern Syria, this type of design. Now, where did Abraham come from? He came from northern Syria. So his descendants, including Jacob, would probably, when they settled in Egypt, would have built a similar type of house. And then these other houses were built around it, as I say, about 70 to 100 people. And then it rapidly expands over a period of maybe 60 to 100 years. This small settlement becomes a huge city of Semitic peoples, which, again, is very much like what the story of the Bible is. So we get this idea of the people coming in with Jacob in the famine, small group of people, and then it expands exponentially. They become wealthy, and it then becomes a threat to the Egyptian state 
and that's when the enslavement period starts, when the Egyptians decide they're too big a threat, these people, we have to enslave them. So all that is there in the archaeology, but what is most important about it is after that house is demolished, on top of it, a huge palace is built, a beautiful palace in Egyptian style with a, a graveyard in the back of the palace, a sort of garden graveyard with 12 main tombs in it. And one of those tombs is a pyramid tomb, which is unique because only pharaohs in this era and their queens had pyramids. Nobody else did. No private people did. And yet this palace did not belong to a king. It belonged to a high official of state. And uh, when they excavated this pyramid tomb, they found a smashed statue in the chapel in front of the tomb, a huge colossal statue, twice life size, wearing a coat of many colors painted on the statue. And this guy had yellow skin and he had red hair and he, was, he had a throw stick on his shoulder showing it the, the scepter of office was that he was an Asiatic, a Semitic person. It fits the story of Joseph perfectly. And even more so, because when they entered the actual burial chamber under the pyramid, they didn't find a body. They didn't find a coffin. They didn't find any pottery. They didn't find any mummy beads. It was completely cleaned out. And then the argument was maybe it was grave robbery, but who would take the bones? So it matches again the story of Joseph, where in the time of Moses at the Exodus, he removed the body of Joseph from his tomb and took it with them to the Holy Land. So why, if there seems to be such a clear synchronicity between what you're finding in the archaeology and the Bible, that this looks like Jacob's family that then expands to become a great palace of a great Semitic, almost royal figure that seems to match the story of Joseph, then why isn't this something that uh, Manfred Bittak himself has pointed out? Why do you think he doesn't connect this with the Hebrews and the story of the Bible? It's very simple, because he accepts the late date for the Exodus, the Ramesses Exodus date, around 1250 BC. So if you then project backwards in time, these people are much too early for him. They cannot be the Israelites, because he wants the Israelites to be there in the New Kingdom period before Ramesses. Yeah, so it goes back to the chronology. Exactly. So if we take the 300 years out that I've suggested we do from Egyptian history, that pulls the, the date of these people, these Asiatics, these Semites in Avaris, right up to the time when Joseph and Moses would have been there. I was reading an article in Archaeology magazine just a little over a year ago that featured this story of the findings there at Tel Adaba, and Manfred Bittak was quoted as saying, it wasn't an invasion. We have no doubt that it was a gradual infiltration. These Syrio-Palestinians moved into Egypt in exchange for something to eat. And this local population hub, mainly of people from the Levant, blossomed with the blessings of the pharaohs. Does seem Quite to be right. a pretty nice match, doesn't it? <laughs> it does exactly. The, his problem is that he, he thinks these people who came in at the end of the 12th dynasty who settled there, as you say, in times of famine probably, he thinks these are the early Hyksos the invaders. They're not. Josephus makes it very clear, Manitho makes it very clear that the Hyksos came in as a marauding horde, you know, with chariots and horses, and they invaded the place after Egypt had collapsed, after God had smote the Egyptians. That's later. So what he's not understanding is that you have to distinguish between the Semitic peoples who come in at the end of the 12th dynasty, who are the Israelites and Hebrews, and those people who invade Egypt after the Exodus, when right. the Israelites have left and moved into Sinai. Would you say that the Hyksos would be Canaanite, but not Hebrews? Absolutely. Well, now that, that's a difficult problem, because what are Hebrews? Okay, now, Israelites are Hebrews, but not all Hebrews are Israelites. Yeah. Okay, so a he Hebrew is not uh, an ethnic group. It's actually a, a, it's sort of a, an explanation of people who are wanderers. 
So there are lots of people wandering. They're not all Israelites. Israelites are specifically the descendants of Jacob. Whose name is Israel. Dis- yes. So we have to distinguish between the two. So who are these people are coming in when the Exodus leave? The Bible tells us who they are. They're the Amalekites. Hmm. The Bible says when the Israelites are leaving Egypt, they meet the Amalekites in Sinai and they have a battle, the first great battle of the of the Exodus and the conquest. So these people, the Amalekites, are the people who are coming into Egypt. They're coming in the opposite direction of the Israelites who are leaving, and they find that there's no Egyptian army there to defend the country, and they take it over. And the name that they're given in the classical text is the word Hyksos. It means rulers of foreign lands, but it also yeah. could mean it could also mean rulers of shepherds, Hekashasu. And, and shepherds, of course, are people like the the Amalekites. In this uh, area that you mentioned, the great palace uh, that was discovered there, the Tel Adaba site, uh, yeah. uh, there were found a number of Canaanite artifacts and numerous bones of sheep that I believe at one point in one of your lectures you said were the long-haired variety that basically originated from northern Syria. Why do you think that's significant? Well, it's the first time that we find sheep in Egypt, long-haired sheep in Egypt. We don't have any evidence from before that. So the people who, who have come into the country, into the eastern delta, are essentially shepherds. And what type of sheep are they, are they bringing in? They're bringing in sheep from north Syria, the type that Abraham would have had, the type that Isaac would have had. So this is absolutely fits the bill perfectly. So you mentioned the, uh, the multicolored coat that the Semitic official who was buried in that great pyramid tomb, was wearing. This, of course, is something we know from the book of Genesis with Joseph and his amazing yeah. technicolor dream coat. Uh, but yeah. the, um, I'm wondering if there is any external information that we have that shows that Canaanites actually wore those types of things besides what we found here at Tel Adaba. Yeah, um, that's, that's straightforward enough. In the reign before the two pharaohs who were co-regents at the time when Joseph arrived in Egypt as a, as a servant slave, if you like, we have identified those two pharaohs as Sennuzret III and Amun Emhat III, who were co-regents. But in the reign immediately prior to that, there was a, a high nomarch or governor of one of the districts of Egypt, in Middle Egypt, who had a tomb built for him. And in that tomb, we see 37 Semites coming into Egypt, they're bringing eye paint with them, they're selling it in Egypt, and they're wearing multicolored coats in stripes and and particular colors, red, black, white, yellow. And this is the only time that we find this sort of representation in Egyptian history. So the very time when we have Joseph wearing a multicolored coat, we see these same type of people illustrated on the walls of a tomb. And then we also find pigments depicting a multicolored coat on that colossal statue that they found there at Tel Adaba. Quite right. Think about it. What is the thing we most remember about Joseph? It's his multicolored coat. Why wouldn't he have that representing him on his statue? Why wouldn't he have more multicolored coats made for him when he was the high official, the vizier of Egypt? He could afford to do that. It's what we remember about him, and it's what he wanted to be remembered by. Folks, if you enjoy this broadcast, consider diving in a little deeper with our White Horse Sin study kits. These kits are perfect for small to medium-sized groups from 5 to 15 people, and they can also be used for family devotions or individual study. Choose from several subjects like how to read your Bible, do we all worship the same God, and the parables of Jesus. For a donation of $15, you'll receive download links to leader's guides, student guides, full-length audio, and short audio clips pertaining to each lesson. Just head to whitehorsein.org 
forward slash study kits. That's whitehorseinn.org slash study kits. Your $15 donation will help us to continue to make resources like this to help Christians know what they believe and why they believe it. Thanks for your support. Welcome back to The White Horse Inn. I'm Shane Rosenthal, and I'm talking with Egyptologist David Roll about evidence for the Exodus. So now, this Semitic settlement of Avaris grows to become a huge city in a relatively, as you say, at a relatively short amount of time. And according to your research, it, this settlement became one of the largest cities of the ancient world. Well, it grew and grew and grew, and it, it covered a vast area as well. It's about uh, two square kilometers. Um, so it's a huge area. I read somewhere that even though Manfred Bitek began his excavations back in the 1960s, he's only actually uncovered about 3% of all that could possibly be found there. So is it possible that as we explore the area and do more archaeological investigations over the next 100 years, we'll find that it was even larger? Um, well, of course, the the problem there is that uh, the excavations have now stopped at huh. Avaris um, because of political reasons. So at the moment, no more will be found there. According to the archaeology, though, after that time of expansion, this whole area of Avaris ended up taking a darker turn and things began to decline. Can you go into that? Yeah. Well, what they found in the, in, when they are examining the, the graves, uh, first of all, is that uh, the, the graves early on are quite rich, richly endowed, and the people seem quite healthy. Later on, what happens is when they analyze, the anthropologists analyze the bones of these people, it's very clear from the, the, the way the bones are that they are suffering from malnutrition. Now, when we look at the cemetery evidence, we find that the surviving people, the adults who survived this slaughter, are predominantly female. There's three females for every two males, which is a skew that you would not normally find. And also, the number of infant burials increases to 50%, whereas normally in a cemetery of this type, it would be about 25%. You can think about what that might be. Well, what about the story of the slaughter of the infant boys uh, that Pharaoh ordered? Because he wanted female slaves who would do the work but wouldn't challenge him militarily. So he decided to cull the, the population of male children. So there's a massive increase in the number of infant burials as well. Tell our listeners about the Brooklyn papyrus as it relates to this period. Yeah, well, there you go again. Um, right in the middle of the 13th dynasty, a pharaoh comes along called Sobekotep III, and he's just before this king called Carnefere, Sobekotep IV, right? So about uh, 20 years earlier than that, okay? And he is the one who has a, a papyrus recorded in his time, his name is on the papyrus, of an exchange of slaves from one place to another. And in that list of around 90-odd slaves, and the majority of them are Semitic, and a number of them have biblical names. Yeah, you list uh, Asher, Issachar, Sifra, yeah. Menahem. Yeah. I mean, some of those are the names of the 12 tribes. Well, not only that, but Zifra was one of the midwives who right. was uh, ordered to murder the, the young boys. What's the traditional date given to the Brooklyn Papyrus? If you're looking at a conventional date for that, you're probably looking about 1750, something like that. And your date would be? Uh, we're coming down a bit now. We're talking about maybe uh, 1500, 1540, okay. something like that. So about 100 years before the Exodus. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, probably about 90 years. Um, do you know of any other time in Egyptian history when you had such a large number of Semites dwelling in the cities? Nope. No archaeological evidence whatsoever. 
So basically, yep. this is why you would say the best way to match the story of the Bible up with Egyptian history is to rethink the chronology, because if we pay attention, there's a great pattern here if we just have less confidence in the received tradition about the chronology. Well, yeah, it's 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 a strange thing, isn't it? That you know, when you try to adjust Egyptian chronology, you get hammered by academics, and yeah. when you try to change any thinking about the Bible, you get hammered by the academics. <laughs> so you're in, you're you're in so a loser when you try to do both at the same time. <laughs> uh, but I'm trying to be honest, you know. I'm trying to say, well, hang on, look, this is where we see the evidence. Okay, I have evidence in Egyptian history that says we have to shorten the chronology. That happens first. And then when we look back at this evidence, we find this archaeological evidence, it fits in with the dating of Egypt once you've revised the timeline. So I have no problem in defending that situation at all. But it is very hard for people to accept this type of thing, right. sadly. But this makes perfect sense. Why not think this way? This is the only time we find this evidence. This is the only time we find all the cities of Canaan being destroyed, like Jericho, etc., etc. But that's all happened much, much earlier, and it can have nothing to do with the Exodus. But when we do look at the Exodus and conquest in the time of Ramesses, we don't find any evidence. Yeah. So what a load of nonsense. You've been hearing from Egyptologist David Roll, author of Exodus, Myth, or History. By the way, you can hear more of my interview with David Roll at whitehorsein.org. Here's a sample of what we discussed on the extended edition. Now, at one point in time, there were a number of hastily dug graves that Manfred Bittak and his team referred to as a plague. And then soon after this, you yeah. say the city was abandoned. That's exactly as we find it. And again, they're just tossed into on top of each other, basically. And so that's why Bittak says something terrible must have happened here. And he thinks it's a plague. Well, it may well be a plague, but we would call it the 10th plague. Folks, if you're interested, Dr. Roll's new chronology was the subject of a recent documentary titled Patterns of Evidence Exodus, which is currently available to purchase or rent from outlets such as iTunes or Amazon Prime. In fact, last I checked at Amazon, this documentary was available to rent for free for a limited time. You can also find books and lectures by David Roll at PatternsofEvidence.com. As always, please remember that the White Horse Inn is a listener-supported program and that we need your help to continue our work. For more information about supporting our efforts, head over to whitehorseinn.org slash podcast partner. That's whitehorseinn.org forward slash podcast partner. Thanks for being with us this week, and we'll see you again next time at the White Horse Inn.